When I lived in London, I used to enjoy visiting the great art galleries. I think you would have probably gathered from my PowerPoint slides that I like art, especially art that makes you think. I particularly look out for religious art. I enjoy reflecting on how different artists portray Jesus and the gospel. I find it helps me to visualise the story. Consequently, when I had the opportunity, I used to tour the galleries everywhere from the Tate Modern to the National Gallery. It was a really good day out. However, at the end of a, a long day enjoying the artwork, there always came an awkward moment. It came as I was about to leave the gallery. Because there, situated by the door, was a big glass bowl with a slot in the top. Yes, you guessed it. It was for donations. In London, the galleries are free to enter, but they do ask you to consider a donation as you leave. In fact, many of them suggest how much that should be based on how much it costs to keep the gallery going. And quite simply, it is the donations of those that visit that enable the galleries to stay open for others to enjoy the artwork too. But to a tight-fisted so-and-so like me, that reasonable rationale could have very little impact when I was immediately confronted by the jar. Time and time again I was left with the dilemma. Should I make a donation? How much should it be? If I contributed to one gallery in the morning, should I contribute to a second one in the afternoon, even if they're owned by the same people? Loads of other people are walking past without putting any money in. Do I really need to? Now, I'm the type of person who agonizes over things like this. There were some times where I walked past, only for my conscience to get the better of me, so I ended up walking back to pay. And there were other times where I had enjoyed myself so much, I freely contributed, as I saw it, as a good cause. I wanted many other people to see what I had seen. You get the picture. Now, I think this is a helpful illustration when we are thinking about the teaching we have just read in Ephesians 4. If you go home and read through again the first three chapters of Ephesians, you will see they are like journeying through God's great art gallery. In chapter 1, you begin with this epic masterpiece, so big it would fill the whole of the room it was placed in. Paul paints this picture of God's love, and it's vast. He tells us that God had chosen us before the creation of the world because he wanted something to love. And he loved us so much that before time began, he had planned a way for us to spend all of eternity with him. It's a picture that begins before time and ends beyond time, and the whole theme is God's love for us. In chapter 2, you move into a new room of the gallery, and here is the room of the personal portraits. And here Paul paints a very bleak picture of what our lives were like before Jesus. We were dead in our sin, he said. But then he rejoices in telling us that by grace we have been saved. Each one of us personally forgiven by Jesus. And it's a picture that shows that God is personal and intimate and full of mercy towards us. 
Then in chapter 3, you move into another room of the gallery. The room of the family portraits. Paul tells us that when we were saved, we were placed into a family. A family of Jew and Gentile, male and female, young and old. Imagine the picture. People of every race and skin colour gathered around the fireplace, if you like, with Jesus at the centre. You and I proudly standing with them. As we have read Ephesians 1 to 3 over the last six weeks, it's been a a mind-blowing journey. Like with any good art gallery, we simply fail to take it all in at first. It's been a marvel. And it leads us wanting to come back and read it again and again. However, as chapter 4 begins, Paul decides that now the time has come for us to move on. To walk out the gallery and into our everyday lives. And on the way out, just as in real life, Paul wants us to realise that we pass the divine donation jar. He asks us some very specific questions. How are we going to respond to all the love that we have seen? Have we valued Christ's work enough to be shaped by it? Are we ready to play our part in keeping the exhibition open for others to see and benefit from? Now, I'm not talking here about how much money we put in the offertory, although as church members, we do need to consider that obligation. The question we are facing here is this. Have we allowed the majesty of all that Jesus has done for us to change our hearts? So we don't just give our money, but we give our lives in thankfulness. Are we going to live daily in ways that follow Jesus? Are we going to be generous in using all the gifts that he's given us, just as God has been generous in blessing us with them? It's not about what others do, whether they donate or not. It's about how much we're going to put in for God we could never have painted God's picture of love we could never deserve what he has given to us but we can play our part in helping others to benefit from so chapter 4 marks a turning point in Paul's letter to the Ephesians after telling us all the wondrous things about God and his purposes Paul is now going to instruct us on how we are to live in response But we must be careful never to try and and separate the two. Because for Paul, how we live is a direct consequence of what we believe about God. You cannot believe in God without recognising that it must have an impact on the way you live your life. Paul begins, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you, To live a life worthy of the calling you received. Now we need to notice here that Paul is writing to the church. He's not just writing to the minister. He's not just writing to the deacons. He is writing to every single person who believes in God and is therefore part of the church. And Paul says, you have a calling on your life. I want us to leave this building this morning knowing that none of us are here at Isla Baptist Church 
by accident. God has called each and every one of us here to this place at this time for a reason. He has a purpose for us. And he has invested in us the potential to fulfill it. It's not just me as the minister who has a calling to be here on Isla. So do each and every one of you. And the first thing Paul wants us to know is how we're to live that calling out. So he continues. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Our calling is totally focused on unity. That is how we even begin to fulfill God's plans and purposes for our lives. Every purpose of God and therefore every purpose of the church begins by God's people being united together. That is the calling that each and every one of us have in our lives. To live in unity with our brothers and sisters. And did you notice how Paul gave some practical instructions on how we do that? He says right at the beginning, be completely humble and gentle, be patient bearing with one another in love. If we're going to be united together, then the very first thing we must do is stop being selfish and just looking out for our own good. Unity requires us to live in a humble and a gentle and a patient way where we look to love others and put them first. Unity requires us, first of all, to sort out our own ego. And when Paul says, make the effort, he means it. He writes, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. In the early chapters of Ephesians, we have seen Paul stress over and over again how our unity is a gift from God. We are united because Christ died on the cross for us all. We are united because God placed his spirit in all of us, the same spirit in all who believe. Unity is then a responsibility. We cannot refuse to dwell with the people who God chooses to place his spirit inside. And that is what unity in the spirit through the bond of peace means. If God loves our brothers and sisters enough to live inside them by his spirit, then we certainly should love them enough to live with them in community. So our calling is to be united for God. This unity is not an option. And just in case we were in any doubt about this, Paul quotes at this point an early church creed to hammer home the message. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. One body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. That's seven ones in one sentence. Paul has made his point. This is urgent. 
in response to all that God has done for us in Jesus Christ, all the grace he has poured out, we are called to live united as his church. And actually this is missional. God has made a family that is completely different to our fragmented and exclusive world. As we meet and we share gifts and we love each other, we are showing the world a better way to live and demonstrating to onlookers the God who brought us together. But unity does not mean that we all must be the same. In fact, it's vital that we are not all the same. And to Paul, this is really important. He begins, verse 7, with a very loud but. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. The point he is making here is that although we all have the same calling, each one of us has been gifted differently to fulfil it. Everybody in this room has been given a different gift of grace, given to them as Christ apportioned it. Paul goes on to quote a psalm to show that when Christ ascended back into heaven after his resurrection, he did so to pour out the gift of his Holy Spirit on the church. But here's the important bit. The Spirit gifts us all differently. And to illustrate this point, Paul gives an example of how the church spreads. His list in verses 11 to 12 is not a list of importance, as if apostles are more important than pastors. It's a list that shows how different gifts are required at different times in a church's life. Paul writes... It was he who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be prophets and teachers, to prepare God's people for works of service, so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. God gifted some people to be apostles, to set out the boundaries of the faith, to plant churches. God gifted some people to be prophets, people who speak particular messages from God in order to give those new church plants a vision. God gifted some people to be great evangelists, to to proclaim the gospel, to make converts, to bring people in to these new churches. God gifted some to be pastors and teachers, to disciple those new converts as they come in. But notice why it says pastors do this. To prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. After the apostle has planted and the prophet has given a vision and the evangelist has converted and the pastor has discipled, the whole church carry on doing the work that they have been individually gifted to do in order to build up God's church. So I am as a pastor, I'm not here to take over everything. God may have gifted me to help teach and disciple you, but that's so that you can then serve with your gifts yourselves. 
A church's leadership is purely to facilitate the ministry and the growth of all the other church members. And suddenly then we see why Paul refers to the church as the body of Christ. Each one of us are different. Some of us are hands, some of us are feet, but we're all vital. Every single one of us in this room at Isla Baptist Church are here for a reason because God has gifted in you the gifts that this church needs at this time. Whether that be preaching or flower arranging or fixing the electrics or working with young people or playing a musical instrument or cleaning toilets, each person in this church is as important as every other person. In the body of Christ, there is no hierarchy whatsoever. There is only Christ. Our head, who shows us where we all go. So we're called to be this united community where we can use our different gifts together. And that is how God wants us to respond to what He has done for us. This is the offering that He wants put in the divine donation jar. But it's very interesting how Paul finishes this section. He says this. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of men in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. As each part does its work. Paul believes that as we live together and serve together, we grow and become more mature. In other words, we don't just develop as Christians by sitting spectating church services. We grow by getting our hands dirty. We learn on the job. Discipleship is apprenticeship. We learn by doing the work of God in our community together. And as we serve God on Isla by using the different gifts that he's given to each and every one of us, we will grow closer to God. And we will grow closer to each other. And we will become such a tight-knit unit that nothing will be able to distract us or blow us off course. We will all together be growing more and more like Jesus and we will be coming to know more and more of his will. So Christians shouldn't just sit still and do nothing because they don't really know what God's vision is for their life yet. We don't know all the details. We don't know every nuance of the calling he's given us. No. We learn it and we grow as we start to get on with it. We grow into Christ more as we begin to use our gifts, as we courageously step out and start to do something. And the full extent of our calling will only be revealed on the journey. And that's an exciting thought, isn't it? And it should encourage us to commit to living for God right now, starting right now as a church together.
So Paul has written some amazing things. He has delighted us by painting a picture of all that God has done. Jesus descended to earth, he lived, he died, he rose again, he ascended back into heaven, he's poured out his spirit on us all, he's given us all gifts to be used. All of that's by God's grace, none of us deserve any of that. That's the picture. But now Paul invites us to begin to make our thankful response, to make the collective donation of our lives. And we do this by coming together as one united community, Christ's body. And in that body, using our different gifts together. And in that way, we keep God's exhibition, his message, his gospel of love out in the world for others to benefit from. So, none of us are here by accident. Every single one of you has been called to be in this place at this time. Let's seek to encourage one another as we try to use our gifts. Let's be loving and supportive as new people come in or new people try to find what their gifts are. And let's try to put ourselves forward where we can to use the gifts that we have. We don't do this for ourselves. We do it for the glory of God and that others may come to know him for themselves.